I think we need to know about Fiona at the outset is that she has a very interesting cultural, rich cultural background. She was born in Indonesia. She came to Australia at the age of two. Her mother is Australian. And she has, of course, on her father's side, uh, Chinese, a very strong, long Chinese heritage. And I think this has um, infected her work and informed her work over many years. And I thought that we, rather than talk about your background as such, I'd like to talk about the influence that your background has had on the work. Phew, what a relief. <laughs> <laughs> Why, do you you Why do you say that? I get so bored with saying, I was born in Indonesia, Well, it's interesting because you live in Holland now and maybe in that context or in the European context that biography is more exotic than it is perhaps here. Yes, that could well be, yeah. But, I mean, there are so many people who come from somewhere else and have a mixed background. Mm. Which would make me ask you a question first up, actually, that occurs to me. We, we all define ourselves in different ways. So the way we look at ourselves, mm. I think some people, it's fair to say, define themselves in relation to other people, like I'm, you know, I'm a mother, or I'm a wife, or partner, or husband. Um, or they define themselves through their work. Mm. You know, I'm a painter, I'm a doctor, I'm a whatever. Do you define yourself through your cultural background, do you think? Is that how you primarily see yourself? No, no, I don't think so. How do you define yourself? Oh, well, um, I, I think just as anyone is, you have a lot of identities and you just, you know, name yourself as, as suits the moment. What's in your passport? Australian. No, in your profession, in your occupation. I don't think that is in my passport, but it's some other, when I have to fill in the entry form, I, I write artist. Artist, yeah. Can we start with Lapse of Memory, which is yeah. the show that's not on here? In a, it's a, it's a, a, a show that was inspired, as I understand, by the Royal Pavilion at Brighton. Yes, the, the, the filming location of the piece is, is inside the, the Royal Pavilion, and it's my encounter with that amazing building that actually right. triggered the piece. What was the trigger? Why that building? Uh, it's one of the best kept examples of Chinois architecture, which was all the rage. Um, at that time, it was built 1812 to 1814, uh, and it's to me the most wonderful sort of example of impossible, fantastic um, interior design and architecture because it's trying to be like the most authentic um, Indian on the outside, Chinese, Japanese on the inside building. Um, but it was designed and built by people who had never ever set foot in Asia. So it's a total fantasy. And um, of course there were books and there was some information. They haven't done a bad job in, oh. in, in many ways. It's sort of like a Chinese Disneyland. <laughs> Is um, it? Yeah, if you ask me, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that, the, just that whole thing that seemed to be ringing bells in my head. What I, bells I, was it ringing? Tell me that. Well, uh, this was when I first was confronted with the building, which was sort of like an, an accident. Um, that was 1997, and it was exactly 10 years since I'd completed the film that you were just mentioning before on the patio, um, May We Live in Interesting Times, which was me in search of my Chinese identity and whether I had one. Um, so the identity of the overseas Chinese or small portion of the overseas Chinese, mm. namely my family, my father's side of the family. 
just felt like it was time to, to rethink that and, and do something with that again. And at that time I also thought, and then I'll, I'll be done with it. I don't have to do it again. <laughs> um, people laugh, oh yeah, they say, sure. <laughs> um, but did it, did I, it succeed? In, did, you, did you at the end think I'm done with that? In some ways, yeah. yes, but then lo and behold, I'm doing, doing Marco Polo two years after that. So, <laughs> you know, that you have those things that you just can't shake off. What is it? Can you put, a, put, put it into words what it is about the Chineseness that you well, wanted to... What did, I mean, was it for you that you did this film or for your audience? Both. Always. Um, there's things I want to think through and I want to work through, but it's not only content. I also want to produce images and I want to get to a stage beyond words. Um, and I was... For a lapse of memory, my, my starting point actually was incredibly ambitious and I failed dismally in that um, I was trying to imagine the world and imagine thinking beyond the dichotomy of East and West. What, how, how do you think about the world and about Asia and Europe and me and my background if you're not thinking West East? If in a unifying way, do you mean or not? Not even that, just, you know, that paradigm, that, that way of thinking about the world, which has been, which is so predominant now and has been for the last how many ever hundred years. Um, you know, can we finally get rid of that? Can we finally, you know, not have to think like that? And if we don't have to, what, what then? What, what, how do we see the world then? And so I was trying to figure that out and actually I, I couldn't. Are you talking culturally, politically or what? Philosophically. Philosophically. I think, yeah, I think how West. you see things, how you understand the world. Are you thinking West versus East or...? Well, it often becomes that, doesn't mm. it? Particularly these days, particularly in the country where I live in at the moment. Well, we could get very philosophical here and say, does that is that a struggle within you then? Is it West versus East in you? Also, yeah. I mean, you were asking me, how does it start off or how do, how do I see it? The thing is... Um, I grew up in Australia, probably very Australian in the fact that I didn't feel particularly proud of being Australian. I didn't feel particularly Australian as a lot of Australians do. Um, that's a really good thing about Australians, I think. Um, Did you feel proud of being a bit Chinese? Yes, I was very proud of being half Chinese. Extremely proud of it. And I don't look it, I don't speak it, I don't understand two hoots about it, I hadn't even been there. So it was ridiculous, but I still wanted to somehow um, assimilate, my, adopt that culture for myself. Why do you think that was? I'm just wondering if you'd grown up with the same parents, but in China, whether the you know it's a supposition. <laughs> they wanted to become Australian. Mm. May well have been. I mean, um, maybe. I mean. I'll just digress slightly. I remember when I was researching for the documentary film I made in 96, which came out in 97, and I was in Hong Kong, and I just got off the aeroplane, and you know, the, the taxi driver will sort of say, where are you from, what are you doing here, you know, and I said, well, I'm, I'm half Chinese, I've come here to visit my cousin and film him for a film, and I was quite so proud, it was my first really big project. And he said, oh, you're brave to admit that. You see, being a mixed half-blood is not a good thing. 
for many traditional Chinese, and, and I was proud. <laughs> um, so, is that part of the explanation? I suppose I think it is. Yeah. So you walked into the the Brighton Pavilion. You were struck by this fantasy Disneyland sort of Chinese Chinois sort of yeah. interior. You filmed in there with an actor. Yes, I, I um, really wanted to do something with the building and kept on going back. And quite soon I thought, I need to have someone living there, otherwise I can't, it'll just be a, a travelogue or a sort of a tourist guide to, to a building. Mm -hmm. um, and it was surprisingly easy to come up with his character. And it, he seemed to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think in many ways he's the personification of the building. Tell us an old, way. muddled up um, building in decay. And he's an um, old, muddled up man, man in decay. Man in decay, yes. Um, um, who obviously was quite aristocratic, but is really worn at the edges and, 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 and run down. And, and losing, up. losing yeah. mental capacity. Yeah. Yes, and so remembering things incorrectly and sort of making it up as it goes along and revisiting things. Um, and um, I just mentioned to someone else this morning for the radio interview, um, to, uh, there's a wonderful film by the Mansley Brothers, it's a documentary film called Grey Gardens, about um, uh, the aunt and cousin or something like that of Jackie Onassis, Kennedy Onassis. Um, and these are two fuddy-duddy women who have not left the house in about 15 years and they're totally crazy. The house is a mess. There's cats and, well, I mean, I don't think you want to smell the place. Um, you know, luckily <laughs> film doesn't smell. Um, <clears throat> but it's, uh, it's such a wonderful, they're so wonderfully eccentric. They're so much themselves. Um, but they don't leave the house. Oh. And, I, and this was somehow made sense to me. I wanted to have something like that. So is the old, muddled-up, forgetful man a metaphor for something, you think? It was... You know, sometimes the artist is the last person you should ask to explain their work. Um, because we just do things, and afterwards we also try just to figure out, why the hell did I do that? Um, I think it was a, a device, probably. It was a way of sort of freeing things up. To have someone who's forgetful opens up narrative possibilities. It also opens up the question of memory, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so memory is something that keeps on, it's increasingly taking on a large, larger role in my work. Why, why do you think that is? Um, maybe because I'm getting older. Um, <clears throat> um, just about to pass my useful life. Um, no, sorry, no, just joking. Um, um, I. I'm very interested in how memory works, as particularly visual memory, and I've been increasingly noticing how inaccurate memory is, but also how creative. Um, so in many ways, I, th I think I'm actually more interested in forgetfulness than in memory. Um, there's, um, there was a fascinating study a few years ago done by, I think it was someone studying law, about how accurate wit witness accounts are. And um, the question that he asked the people who were in his uh, study, uh, his survey, um, was um, dealing with an um, air crash disaster which had taken place in Holland um, a few years previously. Um, and it's the, the bioma disaster. If you say that to anyone, they'll instantly know what you're talking about, this airplane 
from um, LL crashed into a, a flat building at six o'clock at night on a Sunday. <clears throat> I also, you know, it's one of those moments where you instantly remember where you were, what you were doing sort of thing. And he asked them what people recalled of the media coverage of that accident. And people would describe to him in, in uh, elaborate detail um, the television footage, what the television covered, things like that. So plane coming, the lights on, um, crashing into the building, the first flames coming out, the smoke coming out, the first screens, and there was not a single shot taken because it wasn't, I mean, obviously the media usually goes later. Unlike the 9-11 so, event, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Indeed, yeah, where there's recently just been new footage um, yeah. come out. Um, so, you know, you make up the images um, and you, you believe them. Tell me where this fits into your into art then. I mean, I think it's a really interesting subject of conversation and discussion and you can talk to siblings who've shared the same childhood and they have very different memories of, of the same event and, and I'm true. always intrigued yeah. by that you know mm. that they have totally different they, and I argue with my sister I say it's not how it was at all and oh. she does so I think it's very common but yeah. where does where does this where does it come into artistic expression for you well I'm, I'm working with images and I'm, I'm working with how images affect the way you look at things you look at yourself you look at other people so um, for me that slots in there perfectly oh. uh, people Quite often come up to me and ask, you know, openings like this, and, and they'll be talking to me about scenes in my work which are not there. Oh, and, yeah. They see things <laughs> in it. They, they remember things. Um, they put things together or they sort of mix them oh, up or they go off on that. And, um, and I'm not saying that's my goal, but I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking, wow, great. <laughs> you know, because then they're doing something on their own, they're creating their own imagery. Um, so would it be fair to say that memory and um, alienation are themes? This is sounding a bit populist now, but it, it, alienation always interests me too. And what you say about your background suggests an interest in alienation. Well, you know, when when I was about, I suppose, about ten years ago now, when I'd just been working long enough as an artist to sort of start thinking about, okay, what, who am I as an artist and what, what, what's the core of my work? And would have to also give lectures about it and talk about it. I um, used to say then um, that I felt my work was centering around two things. And that is, I was at that time working quite a lot with found images, existing footage, which I still do from time to time. Um, and um, that, I was drawn to very particular existing images and found footage because I was looking for mirrors in which to somehow find things out about myself. Mm. And then the other thing was this fact that I have a migrant background yeah. and I'm very aware of um, yeah, those, all the questions that come up with that and identity issues, language, and mm. um, how those things um, connect with each other. You know, the, um, as you would have noticed already, I have quite an associative mind, so I'm always jumping from mm. one to the next. But um, the Egyptians say that your tongue is a rudder through which you steer yourself in life. And I've always thought, yeah, that's sort of somehow, you know, language is very close, you know, you, to whom you are. It's, it's
is very strongly interconnected. Oh, very interesting. Uh, you know, I speak three languages fluently, and I have a different tone of voice in each language, and that worries me because it's like, hmm, am I schizophrenic? You know, am I three different people? And I but the language demands. Languages. I mean, you don't speak. People speak languages in different tones anyway, don't they? Yeah, you languages do, but you are do feel slightly different when yeah. you're talking in a different tone yeah. of voice. Yeah. That that makes me think we should talk for a moment about the portraits that you've made because you the, the show provenance I find enormously interesting because they were they were portraits of people using moving video yes which I think is absolutely intriguing um, tell me tell, tell us a bit more about that you yeah, shot it on film I, I think did it's shot you? on film most of my work is shot on film I, I still really like the, the quality of the film um, these are six silent, looping portraits. There's not really a narrative. Um, each film lasts between three to five minutes, but there's no beginning and ending um, of people in my very immediate surroundings um, <clears throat> in black and white, uh, presented on small LCD monitors. And um, I, um, they're presented uh, in, uh, so I won't go into the technicalities of it, but it's actually a higher resolution than what we normally see. So it's actually like looking at moving photography. And I was very, I, 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 I really wanted that. I'm, I'm very interested in what I call the, the grey area, where the twilight zone between photography and film. So when is, when is something moving, when isn't it? And um, this was also about painting. It's like, can, I look, can you look at a film like a painting? And if you can, what does that mean? And so then... What's the answer to that? <laughs> the work. <laughs> <laughs> because you, I mean, you're living in Holland and you're living in a country which has a very long tradition of making pictures of the human face. Yes. Haven't you? A, a sort of a portrait well, I, tradition. Well, I, I did a, for that piece, I did a whole study in, in and I wrote a book about it, a little book, <laughs> wrote an essay about um, <clears throat> portraiture, some paintings that I, portrait paintings I was interested in. Um, the first half of the 17th century. Mm. And do you see yourself in a direct, in, in that lineage? Do you see yourself as the, I'm not asking you to compare yourself with a Rembrandt or a Vermeer, but, but are you the next, is this technique that you use the next sort of thing, next line? Uh, well, I don't see myself as something completely different than, than yeah. what a painter does. So in that sense, um, no problem with you know studying art history, thinking about painting, um, looking at paintings. Um, I, uh, you know, paintings still being made, and it always will. I think you know they every now and then, every ten years, this discussion comes up. Paintings dead. Yes, you know? of course. And, <laughs> and still people do it. Yeah. So, I mean, what that, does black and white give you that colour doesn't? That's very interesting. It's quite hard to pinpoint what it is. Um, I thought for a long time before I was about to shoot provenance, well, should I do it in black and white or should I do it in colour? And I was going through a certain timelessness and I was also quite concerned that uh, people would think, oh, I'm just copying paintings which I don't think I am. Mm. Um, so I didn't want to be too close 
to a painting. It was also the first time I presented it, it was in the Rijksmuseum. So, you know, Rembrandt and Vermeer were literally around the corner. And I sort of felt like a really hard act to follow. It was like, <laughs> you know, geez. Um, so, <laughs> so I thought, you know, I'm, I've, I've got it, and I'm, you know, hanging them on the wall like paintings also, you know. So yeah. I, was, I was sort of the first time I showed her, I was a bit nerve wracking. And it's the last room that you go into when you exit the Knights Museum. Um, so, uh, you know, I quite sort of thought, okay, well, I won't do it in colour because then I'm not muddling in there. <laughs> Is there something in shadow that can be found in black and white that can't in colour, do you think? Something in shadow? In shadows on a face. Maybe. Someone made, once made a comment that there was so much colour in the black and white provenance, mm. and I thought that was a nice thing to say. The thing that I find with black and white, it's a really interesting um, thing to think about, I was talking about this some the other day, um, is that even though in some ways we, we are conditioned to think of colour as being old-fashioned, right? So uh, when the first colour photographs of the Second World War started coming from the Russian archives, or you know, because there was colour already then, but we weren't used to it, it felt totally wrong. You know, I remember looking through the Spiegel, sort of thinking, this can't be. Mm. Um, so black and white is, in theory, nostalgic uh, or old-fashioned. But I think you can also work with it in a way which isn't that at all. And why I wanted to work with it was also because I felt it was more timeless. Yes, um, yes. Because colour becomes very much, um, you know, I've worked a lot with amateur photographs and sort of collect them and do things with them. and. Um, I can tell you instantly um, if a photo comes from the 70s or the 60s or the 50s, um, just because from of the colour, and also the way it fades, but um, um, there's you know, a very different sort of um, feeling from that colour, and I didn't want that work to age so quickly, mm. that in 10 years' mm. time, people would say, ah, oh, That was done 10 years ago. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, Let's get on to Disorient now, okay. which is uh, the one that is here. It's, I mean, it's the most exquisite visual. It's, it's so rich. What's the, what was, I mean, the Brighton Pavilion was the starting point for the lapse of memory. What was the starting point for this? The starting point, I suppose, was Marco Polo's book, The Travels, um, knowing that I was uh, made, going to make a piece specifically for Venice, and I did want to do that. I, I wanted to position the work in Venice mm -hmm. and I've been talking with the curator about Venice's history as being this starting point for all those trading routes to the east and that's how Venice became rich um, and um, I very deliberately did my utmost to make the big screen, the first screen that you see when you come in as appetising as I could. I wanted you to get greedy and sort of think, oh I wish it was a shop, I wish I could buy stuff. You know, I wish I could have, have some well, of that. I did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, the, the, the detail is extraordinary. Yes, well, and that was the other thing. That was, like, nerve, totally nerve-wracking. Um, you know, I'd come up with this plan. I want to sort of recreate Marco Polo's museum, if he had one. Um, you know, what, what, what would he have brought home with him if he could? Um, and then we had to go and find the stuff. 
So it wasn't that objects suggested themselves to you. You went looking for every object that we see. Yes, I mean, I had a lot of help, right? I had assistants and, and um, you know, people helping me. But I had a list of about 15 countries that Marco Polo had been through on his way to China on the way back. So it's a very large scope. And I also deliberately wanted um, some anachronism going on. I wanted new stuff. I wanted stuff that was very clearly not from 700 years ago. But I also wanted real antiques. And um, that's, that was so near museums and collectors and um, just trying to access stuff from and everywhere. And then you assembled it all in Venice. Yeah, then we got it all together, put it in a huge tra- truck with a trailer behind it, and um, took it down to Venice, <laughs> set it up in the pavilion, filmed it, pulled it down again. <laughs> filmed it? And we see the film, not the actual film. <laughs> I'm really, I want to know why. Why did you do it like that? Um, firstly, um, because I really did specifically want to position it in Venice, but I also wanted to, to give you something which you couldn't get, sort of thing. So, um, you know, if you're standing in the pavilion where it's filmed and, and like, the cam- main camera position is the, the vantage point that you have when you walk into the pavilion. Right? The first thing you see when you walk into the pavilion is the big screen. Yeah. And, and that was the main camera position and that was how the whole set was set up. And I give that away on the other side, but only quite yeah. subtly, you know, yeah. you have to sort of fit through it to sort of figure that out. Um, but I really did want you to sort of suddenly realise, hang on a minute, oh my goodness, that was here, where I am. And I'm just like Marco Polo, this traveller who's just come in, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting, you know, I, I really did want you to have this funny, um, be able to jump 700 years, in a room, yeah. and also to geographically very clearly locate yourself in Venice. Yeah. If you can. It's re- but it's, 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 it's very explain, it's disorientating in a sense because just I mean just there's just one thing that I saw <coughs> with what I thought initially were Venetian gondolas and they're actually Chinese <laughs> <laughs> Chinese people in the in a canal. Yeah. 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 yeah it's beautiful footage. Is this your most personal work today? Do you think? Disorient. Yeah. I mm. wonder. I wanted, you know, Marcos Polo's book struck me as being highly impersonal. Because impersonal? Yes. It's like he doesn't have a friend. He talks about himself in the third person sometimes, doesn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, he and Kubikan are fantastic, but it's almost like he doesn't mean anyone. He, occasionally he'll sort of say the women are beautiful and you think, ah, oh, okay. There but, are idolaters um, <laughs> about everybody. Um, there are idolaters um, here. You know, and there are theories left, right and centre that he became addicted to opium when he was yeah. in Afghanistan. And, had to stay there for a year to recuperate and all the rest of it. But I mean, he never talks about his father, never talks about his uncle, um, and doesn't actually meet anyone. It's only things and objects, and I wanted to, to highlight that. It's quite um, uh, heartrending to hear the voiceover talking about na- the names of places that we know from the Iraq War that we hear in the news all the time. And, to, mm-hmm. and, you know, Baghdad being the most beautiful city in the world, and you think, God, what's it like now? Yeah, well, I'll show you that one. And, and nothing changes. I mean, it, the thing that I, I've come away partly from that is that history doesn't change, does it? it doesn't. No, well, Tibet is the same yes, situation. Exactly. Just being ravaged yeah. by savages. Mm, yeah. Funny, <laughs> funny that. Mm. 
At this point, I wonder if... How are we going for time, Jean? It's about 15 minutes now. 15 now. <coughs> Till we finish. Okay, so uh, what about... What about... Oh, right. Let's always do this. <laughs> what was the schedule? Well, 15 to... It's up to you, Margaret, but I'd say 15 to 20 minutes if you want to go into questions let's, now. Let's... Uh, well, I'll we'll see where it takes us. Have we got any questions? <coughs> Would anybody like to ask questions from what we've heard so far? Or are you... Have you had a chance to have a look, a good look at the show? Yes? Can I ask? Yeah. Um, how did it feel in regard to Disorient being or representing Holland in the Biennale with you know, an extraordinary piece of work that is you know, premised on both your background in terms of the Chinese connection, but also the emphasis, the, the centrepiece for it, and the weirdity and the oddity that the Biennale is? Mm. So they would say, you know, are you Dutch? And say, no, I've got an Australian passport. Or do you feel Dutch? 
And I said, well, I'm probably more Dutch than I ever care to admit, because I've been living here for 20 years. Mm. You know, there's that book um, by the Irish writer, The Third Policeman, and he lives with his bicycle and he's out on his bicycle doing his rounds every day. And so he and his bicycle have had so much atom exchange that he finds himself at night leaning on the side of the walls in his, in his hallway. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the bicycle will be on the lounge watching, in the lounge watching television. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm sure I've got a lot of Dutch action in the day. <laughs> Designed to be a a. I, I see them as a, a, as, a couple. as a yeah um, as a um, good complement to each other. Can I get into your mind into that into the cr- sort of the business of actually getting these things created in the first place? Do you write things down, for instance? Do you yes. s- not storyboard, but do you write notes for yourself, or mm-hmm. do? You? Yes. How do you um, tell us about that? Well, I, I think I'm always writing. Uh, but writing is a very good way of sort of figuring out what you actually want. Do you draw as well? Um, I do draw, but it tends to be pretty sloppy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, for a, a lapse of memory, I did actually end up doing the storyboard because it was required. Um, it was one of the most uh, difficult, nerve-wracking productions I've ever done in that they did give permission for me to film in the pavilion, but <laughs> they didn't actually really want me there. How long did it take to film? Well, I, after some lengthy negotiations, I was allowed to film there for five evenings. Um, but they, it's, a, it's a museum open to the public every day, um, and so they no way they would close it. So we were allowed to film from five o'clock in the afternoon until ten o'clock at night, mm. and that's it. And that's a very short space of time, yeah, just five to hours for a whole film crew. And we, we had to, you know, get everything in, all the lights and cables and everything, and everything out again by by ten o'clock at night. And if we were um, five minutes over time, we'd get a fee of a fine of five hundred pounds. They were incredibly nervous and uh, strict. One thing occurs to me, and that is scale. Here we're seeing disorient on a large, uh, large screen, mm. but I, I think you can see bits of it on YouTube or, or whatever. Is that? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, because it packs a real punch on a big screen. Yes. Doesn't it? Well, this is one of the problems, I suppose. I go through a lot of cares, for Jean will know, uh, <laughs> as to how I install my works and how I want people to. Uh, receive them. receive them and be in the space with them, uh, and so 
you know, if you haven't been to an exhibition, I don't really think you've seen the work. Mm. Mm. And so someone was complaining the other day about, oh, there's only one fragment on the internet. You know, it comes up 20 times, but it's the only the one same two minutes. And I sort of said, well, yeah, it's not the work. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. uh, the work is it wasn't designed taking for the your internet. time up there. And, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's such a different... I'm sorry, but it is. It's a hugely different experience looking at something like that or, or sort of being able to step into it. Mm. And, yeah, and, you know, in that way, I'm a sculptor, because I think yes. about size and Absolutely. scale and how it relates to the body and how it relates to you moving through the space. Um, yeah. So. Any more questions before we wrap this one up? Yes, uh, Michael? Yes, sure. Yeah. Sure. I've been away a long time. So yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wonder where you want to go, you know, looking at what Stephen McQueen's done with, with hunger yeah. and you know, some of the other you know, people who started off working yeah. you know, with photography, working with film, yes. and now are engaging with the whole idea of working with actors mm. and, and working yeah. with other people. Does that hold an interest for you in, in wanting to become more involved in creating the dramas rather than Maybe. Never yeah, say never. I wouldn't want my artistic freedom to compromise. And so Hollywood can't steal you immediately. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I know that you know making a, a feature movie um, can be a very lengthy process. Where you, you know, as soon as you get more money involved, then you, you have to be talking to a lot of people. Things can be. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm slowly working towards that. But at the moment, I'm enjoying. Other things are making a sound piece, right? First sound piece for a, in a park. Um, and I quite like to sort of alternate between sort of big complicated projects and much smaller, easier ones that I can just do in the studio. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I, you know, I, 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 every now and then I sort of, there's a question coming up more and more also because it seems to be, you know, quite a few artists who, who are doing that, not only Steve McQueen, and Matthew Barney, but Shirley Strat. Probably a few others. Um, Douglas Gordon, Sandra Wood, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, yeah. um, <clears throat> which makes me interested, interested, instantly sort of think, well, why should I do it then? You know, so, um, why do it? What everyone's doing? Um, that sort of thing. Um, and I, that's actually how I, one of my first introductions to film, 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 was because as a student I worked in a cinema. Um, and it was a student-run cinema, we did everything, we cleaned the toilets, we served behind the bar, we sold the tickets, we did the administration, it was a chaotic place, but fantastic. Um, and um, we um, you know, laid in the films and um, did the film projecting. And so film was actually this material, it was this stuff which can tear and break and um, <coughs> these long rolls. And um, I, that sort of was, for me, my first getting to know film and also making mistakes. I remember one of the first films I, actually the very first film I projected on my own was Le Grand Bouffe, heavy film to be projected. And um, I was staring at, you know, got it all, it's quite complicated when you're working, you have these called no rewind tables, so the film's lying, it's really heavy, you know, quite a few kilos, lying on the table, being pulled out of the, you pull it out of the centre, Spread it over the room into the projector, thread it all the way back so it winds up on a different table underneath. 
quite sort of physical, you know. And um, uh, so, you know, you have to do all that, and then you, you time in lights down, music off, you have this whole sort of list of things that you go through. And then, you know, turn the projector on, is it, is it sharp, is it in focus, and, and is, is the frame right, and everything. So, you okay, I'm staring at it, staring at it, and I thought, there's something wrong, there's something not right, you know, and I was looking at the names coming out, and I said, and I was looking at me, and I went, oh, it's mirror image time. <laughs> 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 it took me a while to figure it out, because <laughs> I'm left-handed, and I used to write <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so if I ever make a movie, I'll probably be so highly experimental in my way. No one will ever back it. Anyway. You remind me of myself when I was a young radio broadcaster and we used to play LP records. And I, I went, had the distinction of playing Brahms's first symphony, the first movement, the third movement, the first, second movement and the fourth movement. <laughs> in, in that order. <laughs> I've got all the records mixed up. <laughs> Fiona, thank you very much. That's really very interesting. Would you please join me in thanking you.